1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we turn again for this morning. 1 Corinthians 1 and a special lesson on the foolishness and weakness of God. Anything will go. Did I come to the right church this morning? Is God really foolish? Is God weak? Well, that's what so many people in Corinth thought, anyhow. And Paul was trying to set them straight in terms of their thought and their appreciation of what the gospel is and their relation to it and even how they were viewing Paul and his ministry. So if you don't mind, the these these paragraphs, there are three paragraphs that really... Um, and our paragraphs in Scripture, you think, oh, it's all just verses, right? No, the verses are part of sentences that are part of paragraphs that are part of whole strains of thought. So there is an over, overarching theme of what Paul is doing here. Again, on the topic of dissension in the church and those who thought that they were a little bit better, a little bit more wise, a little bit more special than other people, and they had these different party uh, spirits, whether or not, to whatever degree, they were organized into specific you know, sects within the church, it's unclear, but th there was definitely the beginning of it, and definitely a, a burgeoning kind of conflict uh, brewing in the in the congregation in Corinth. And so it does it itself, or if you don't mind, it pertains to the idea of wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And in so many different respects, we would rather, at least the Corinthians, and I think we as well, would, would tend toward, yeah, I think we're wise, and God ought to just change his ways because we know better than God. Hmm, that's not the way we should approach things. If we didn't learn anything from Job, the gospel according to Job, we are, we're going to learn something from Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about the apparent, because it's just apparent, it's not obvious, it's not inherent, it's just what we see or we conclude about God's wisdom, that it really is foolishness. No, it's not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God. And by the way, it is effective. It is powerful. Human wisdom can accomplish just a little bit, but God's wisdom accomplishes everything that God's purpose intends. In these in these um, paragraphs, beginning at verse 18, chapter 118 through uh, about uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, there are three different paragraphs, and Paul is addressing this issue of dissension and think people uh, turning toward, if you don't mind, man's word versus God's word or man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And they say one of the big things they're struggling with is, with is the absurdity the foolishness, the the apparent just laughingstock nature of the gospel. I mean, what is, this gospel is really embarrassing. I mean, for us that are kind of popular, kind of you know, we're kind of a big thing in the in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And the Corinthians say, Jesus is nice, but we've got to kind of make it nicer to to the the civilization around us. We've got to. Um, make it more palatable to the, to those who are intellectual, the, the philosophers of this age. And so Paul says, no, you, you need to recognize the absurdity of the gospel that it preaches a crucified Christ. And they say, yeah, we know it preaches a crucified Christ. That's why we're trying to, to make it more palatable, more exciting, more uh, approachable toward people. And Paul says, you don't do that. You don't do that because that empties the gospel, as he says in verse 17, empties the cross of Christ uh, of its power. So the Corinthians, in their wisdom, are saying, no, we, we that crucified Christ, we just can't deal with that. That's what we'll be looking at today. But he goes on in the next paragraph, 26 through 31 verses. He says, the gospel is absurd, to the Corinthians anyway, because it calls those who can only boast in God. 
But we like to boast in ourselves. We like to celebration of me and, and I'm special and so are you, but I'm more special because I'm me. And, and so there's, there's this, this uh, pride and arrogance and condescension looking down on other people. And Paul says, yeah, the gospel is absurd because it, it only brings in those who can only, their only source or resting of, of boasting is in God alone. In fact, he says in verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't you boast in yourself now. And then finally he says, the absurdity of the gospel is that it relies on the power of God rather than the wisdom of men. Paul said, when I came, I didn't come with, in chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come with superiority of word of wisdom proclaiming you the witness of God. I determined to know nothing. He was doing weakness, weakness and in fear, and we'll get to that later. But he says, the only way that God's power through the gospel is made manifest is by preaching the gospel not by uh, uh, adding on wisdom and rhetorical skill and, and you know, the punchline and the... No, you preach the gospel, you preach the cross, you preach what Christ did dying in our place. It's a crucified Christ. Who wants to celebrate a crucified Christ after all? I thought we were going to have this victorious Messiah figure and, and he would just bring uh, uh, justice to victory and it would just be tremendous. And Well, yes, that's coming. But his, thankfully his first coming dealt with the need because if if Christ just skipped that first coming and came in his second coming there would be no one justified Christ had to come to take away sin and then coming again the second time to receive the kingdom prepared for him and so we are grateful that he is a crucified Christ doesn't make sense to the world it's an embarrassment to them it is a stumbling block as we'll see to the Jews and and yet Paul says it's the wisdom and power of God get over it don't think that you're somehow more smart than God or figured out things beyond God and, and that God needs your help. Boy, God is really thankful you were, you were born because he was kind of in a tough spot. No, that is abject foolishness. That is human arrogance on such level that is breathtaking. And yet, don't we think that a lot of times when we even pray? We say, God, you might not know about this. Did you know this? This is what's happening in my life or my neighbors or sister or whatever. God, what are you going to do about it? God is already doing something about it. He's, he's urging you to pray, but also to trust in him and find your refuge in him because God's wisdom is, can you imagine, better than our wisdom. Wow. I mean, that's tremendous. But these very erudite, very smart Corinthians said, oh, I don't know about this, Paul. And so Paul addresses a beautiful section of scripture here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. Let me read this, these uh, verses 18 through 25, and then we'll look at them more carefully. He says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we see here in this, again, a beautiful section of Scripture, 
the contrast between man's wisdom or man's word and God's word. And you just wonder, well, what is the standard of wisdom? Wisdom is a key idea to Greeks. Corinth is, is it's part of the Roman Empire now, but it was a long-standing city in the, in the Greek uh, world, Greek, uh, city-state and, and all the, all the history of the Greek civilization. Very much interested in wisdom. In fact, uh, one of the earlier historians said they're, they're just always learning, always trying to figure out something new and a new spin on this. That's what we saw. We read recently in Acts 17. Do we read this? I don't know. You can read it. Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens and they just sat around just trying, trying to discuss what's new, uh, new ideas, not new news events. They want to know thoughts. They wanted to think about this and evaluate and criticize and talk and engage, which is delightful. But when you when you do it in the words of like Solomon, under the sun kind of thinking, it's empty. It's full. What, what progress are you making in here? What how are you solving these things? Because we can spend all the time talking about the issues, but it's kind of like the weather, right? When we studied Job thirty eight, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. I mean, we talk and talk and talk, but where does talk get us? And Paul says, let me tell you something. Let me tell you a word that is powerful and effective. It's the word of the gospel. This other word, the words of men, not so much. Well, the Greeks really were wondering about this, and they, they have these kind of big questions. You've heard these questions. You've thought about them yourself. Where did life come from? What's the meaning of life? What happens after death? What is knowledge? What is truth? What is beauty? What is goodness? What is love? How should I live in this world? And these are the issues they're working on, but when you deal with it just in a human perspective, it, you don't make much progress. Did you notice in this text there's there are different groups that are labeled here, uh, and um, let me just walk through a couple of them. There are, there's a way to differentiate people based on ethnicity or religion or commerce, position in, in trade and commerce, uh, or sex, like gender, or there's a way to classify people with in societal roles, or also in terms of the gospel and in terms of future. Okay, so what are some of these things? In terms of ethnicity, well, Jew or Gentile, it's pretty clear. In Scripture, you're either Jewish if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. But wait a minute. Jewish just means you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whereas Gentile means everything else. Well, yes, that's because that's an important role, an important distinction God has made for the preservation of his people and the uh, preserving and, and getting to that line of, of uh, descent or genealogy that brings us to Lord Jesus. So Jew and Gentile distinctions are very important. There's a religious uh, classification, and we saw this in Colossians 3 and verse 11, about circumcised and uncircumcised. Again, either you are or you aren't, and it was a religious expression. In terms of commerce, you're either slave or you're a free man. So this isn't a, uh, this is the good part and this is the bad part. It's just saying there's a, a sharp distinction between these two classifications, whether one is good or bad, and that's not a, a moral judgment so much. Uh, at this point, especially when you get to male and female, it's not a moral judgment. It's just there's differences between male and female. Or in society, the Greeks or in Greco-Roman society said anybody that doesn't speak Greek, they are barbarians. They are just barely human kind of thing and very much condescending toward them. In terms of the gospel, though, and this is where things change because these other categories, these other classifications, they don't matter. What matters is do you believe or you do not do you not believe? Are you being saved or are you perishing? That's what we see here in verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness. Who? To whom? Those who are perishing. It's not to the Greeks or the Jews or whatever. It's just those who are classified in that in that 
condition of perishing or being ruined, or as John 3.16 says, they're going to perish apart from the gospel. They don't believe in the gospel, you're going to perish. But you believe in the gospel, you will not perish or be ruined or die eternally. But to us who are being saved, here's the other contrast. This is the gospel, the word of the cross is the power of God. Paul refers to the gospel in so many different terms. In this verse, he says, which is the only time he uses that particular phrase. But back up in verse 7, he talks about the cross of Christ will not be made empty. And it is both the event of what Christ accomplished on the cross, but also the message saying, hey, look to what Jesus did. So he has all these different ways of describing the gospel. We'll see some more different ways as we go along. In verse 18, we see that there are two perspectives in the gospel. Again, the word of the cross, the gospel, the, the good news, which he's going to revisit, right, in, in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, about the gospel. He's going to come back to that idea. But he says right now there, there are different approaches and perspectives on this. And you Corinthian believers, you need to get a grip on this because you need to appreciate the fact that you love the gospel and there are those who don't. They think it's foolishness. They think it's just abject mocking, laughingstock, uh, absurdity, ridic ridiculous, which is worthy of ridicule. That's what they do. And Paul says, you need to rest in the fact that you are being saved by the power of the gospel, not because of your wisdom, not because you're such a goody two-shoes or, or so smart. No, the word of the cross is foolishness. It is uh, not a foolishness like... Um, like a comical kind of thing, like playing the fool for, for comic relief kind of thing. No, it's, it's, it is like I mentioned, it is worthy of ridicule. It is absurd. It is absolutely, um, irrational. Just doesn't make sense. How, how does, tell me again, how does this make sense? Even back in Acts 17, when Paul referred to the resurrection, they said, what is this resurrection business about? Why would anybody want to join the beautiful spiritual life back with some ugly matter again what that's that distinction the the as socrates and plato would say no the the death is the freeing of the soul from the prison house of the body and so the resurrection is just what you would not that that is stupid that is laughable and not in a comic kind of way but but again a, a something worthy of derision so the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing those who are on their way on their way to destruction those who are um just ruined. The idea of, of perishing is is inherent within them. They are perishing because the wages of sin is death, because God has judgment and condemnation for those who are outside of Christ. We see that this, this gospel of Christ, a suffering Messiah, is just abject foolishness. What is interesting about this idea, this isn't Jew or Gentile, this isn't uh, circumcised, uncircumcised. This opposition to the gospel, opposition even to the Messiah suffering on the cross. No, we don't want that. That's, that's just that that shakes us to our core. Why would the Messiah need to suffer? Well, because the scripture said from even Genesis 3.15. But real godly, I suppose, people would suffer, um, be concerned about that or be um, confused about that. Even Peter, the apostle Peter, you remember back the first time that Jesus started talking about, hey, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed and all this, and crucified, and three days later rise again. Rise again, fine. But what's this about being crucified? And you, at that, from that time, Matthew 16, from that very time, he began to repeat that idea, and Peter took him aside, and he said that wonderful, that wonderful line that showed how much in submission, how much in line Peter was within, with God's uh, purposes. No, Lord! 
which you don't say that to a Lord. You don't say that to God. You, you say, yes, Lord, and help me understand this. What are you saying? But Peter did not have this understanding of this, uh, this suffering Messiah. He said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you, this, this idea of being killed. It happened again later when, when Jesus and the disciples are there in the Garden of Gethsemane and all the people come and Peter uh, takes up the sword. I know these are scissors, but a sword and cuts off the, the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Why? Because he wanted to protect Jesus from his inevitable destiny, which is to say going to the cross. And so he, no, this cross should have nothing. Those, that's foolishness. It makes no sense. It's irrational. How can this be? I thought Messiah was supposed to come and deliver us. And here he is suffering. Do you know there is a time coming, and it was for Peter very soon after this whole thing, several weeks later, when he is preaching at Pentecost, and he says, oh, I understand it now. Jesus had to die. He died at the hand of, of ungodly people. He says it both in the, the Pentecost sermon. He says it again in the sermon in chapter 3. And then he writes about it in his book, First Peter 2 and verse 24. talks about the importance of the cross central to Christian identity. So it was foolishness to him because he wasn't saved. He wasn't a regenerate guy back then. Talking about all the works he was doing. Well, Judas was doing those works too. He fell apart, fell away and, and perished. But Peter came to faith and came to appreciate the gospel, which makes this second perspective very evident. The, the wisdom or the, the cross of the word of the cross is power. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. It is effective. It, it, it changed my life. It changed my perspective, changed my destiny. I'm no longer uh, being ruined, being, um, uh, on the way toward toward death and destruction, I am on the way toward life and health and peace and relationship with God. Those who are being saved. Do you notice that both of these verbs are participles, those who are perishing and those who are being saved? They're both in the present tense, which is to say, people who are not believers are dead men walking. They're not alive. And you think, well, can't they come alive? Well, not in their own power. They can believe, they can trust the gospel, but even that faith, that the gift of repentance, the gift of faith, it's a gift from God that he gives to, to those who are called, as we see here in this, in this uh, text. And we've already seen earlier in chapter one. So we see that God's word is effective. Those who are being saved, salvation has a past, present, and future aspect to it. And that is to say, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous. We are being saved right now. We're being saved from the power of sin, delivered. We're no longer, like Romans 6 talks about that. We are no longer subject to, uh, you know, mastered by sin. We can be, we should be, must be, and we are truly, but sometimes we disobey. We are mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to obey him. And then finally, there is a future future sense of salvation that is glorification, entire uh, you know, resurrection of our bodies and, and no more sin. And even the, the presence of sin will be taken away. And we look and long for that day. So there is this idea. We are being saved and we are cross of Christ, that gospel that gives us this hope. Well, in verse 19, he illustrates this and he says, this isn't a new thing. This whole, this gospel work or this, this, uh, power of God and salvation. It's from hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago. He quotes this, this statement from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. Basically, and he, there's some other things going on with this, with this quotation, but I'll just mention the fact that God identifies two things. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, and he's going to set aside the cleverness of the clever. He's going to destroy. Same word as we saw before, to those who are perishing, those who are uh, being destroyed or ruined, same same word. Uh, God will destroy 
the wisdom, the thinking, the, the worldview, the, the perspective that these unbelievers have, these people who find their wisdom in themselves and say, God, you, you're not doing things right. You, you better, you should have checked with me first before you did that, because I could have told you that's not going to work. And God says, no. I'm not just going to ignore or dismiss. I'm going to destroy that kind of wisdom because no flesh is going to boast in my presence. Nobody is going to have any possibility of of having a one-upsmanship on me. I am God, God says, and I'm going to destroy. I'm going to take this. I'm going to demolish any argument that stands up against me. He will set aside the cleverness of the clever. He will take the the understanding. These, these two words are pretty common together in the Old Testament. Wisdom and here is translated cleverness. Another way to translate is understanding. A lot of times we see wisdom and understanding together, especially in the Proverbs, but in the, in the prophets and even other places. And so God says, if you don't find your wisdom in me and find your understanding in me, which kind of reminds us of the fear of the Lord at the beginning of wisdom, and also the Holy One is understanding. So if we don't have the fear of the Lord and we fear or fear in terms of reverence, respect, honor, really exalt ourselves. We have no wisdom. The wisdom of these wise men is foolishness. The the understanding of the clever, it is, from God's perspective, laughable and absurd. And so he says, I'm going to set apart the wise and intelligent, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 25, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, those who are like child, like a child who humble themselves before God, and so God says, look, I'm going to set those things apart or set aside, dismiss, and not in a ignoring kind of way, but actually uh, that, that needs to be put away. That, that cannot survive in this world. That's not helpful. It is not advancing uh, righteousness, godliness, faith, or anything like this. In verse 20, he builds on that idea, and he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, there are three different categories of of people that Paul identifies here, and you can kind of think of it in two different ways, I guess. It kind of hinges on this idea of scribe, and some people would would say all these are Greek, Greco-Roman ideas or, or roles in society. Philosopher, definitely. Debater, yeah, one who who likes to argue and likes to you know have uh, hopefully productive conversation, dialogue on things, but always never really coming to a conclusion. Just always talking about this and what about this and what so and so says this and but so and so is over here says this and just always debating, never really coming to a resolution on anything. The philosophers, those who loved wisdom. Uh, so the question is 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 one, how, how does Paul refer to this? How does, to whom is he referring here? I think the scribe isn't just uh, somebody who is uh, a lawyer or a, because that's the word, uh, somebody who, who d- does with letters. I think he's referring specifically to Jewish scribes because that is the predominant use. In fact, this is the only time outside of the gospel as gospels and acts where this term is used um, and it's in Paul's writing and he's talking about, uh, a, I think, a Jewish scribe. Why do we say that? Corinth is a predominantly Gentile city, but where did Paul go first when he came to Corinth? To the synagogue. And he taught there for weeks until they said, we don't want anything to do with with this. He's going to talk about Jews here in just a moment again. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. Well, why is it foolishness? Because these scribes have studied the scriptures, and then they said, but but what does Rabbi so-and-so say about this? What is Rabbi? And they are so consumed with what Rabbi say and the wisdom of men and, and all this. And Paul says, no, where is the scribe? Where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? So he brings in Jewish 
philosophy or wisdom and Greco-Roman philosophy and uh, these arguers, these these wise guys, and, and just says, where are they? Where are they showing up? To, can they do anything? They're, they're all over the place, but it's like, what kind of benefit are they providing for people right now? Because God has and will uh, destroy the wisdom of the wise. Those who are clever in their own wisdom, verse 20 says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he refers to so many different ways, this wisdom of the world, the contrast again, man's word versus God's word, wisdom of the world, wisdom of this age versus the, the wisdom and power of God and so forth. And so he really bring, brings or builds a strong contrast here. It's not that, well, you can, you can combine those two ideas. We can, have, we can have a little bit of worldly wisdom and put it with God. No, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And why would you want to put these things together? In fact, one person said, I didn't quote him, one person said about wisdom, that, um, this is a longer quote, but he says uh, this, since you've become Christians, this is basically what Paul is saying, since you've become Christians, Corinthians, have you, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and recognize the scripture as his word, you have no more need for philosophy. It did not help you when you were unbelievers, and it will certainly not help you now you believe. Give it up. It has nothing to offer but confusion and division. You are now united with our own God's supreme revelation in Jesus Christ. Don't be misled and split by human speculations. That's from MacArthur's commentary in 1 Corinthians. And we think, well, well, that sounds so harsh. I mean, there's, certainly there's things you can learn from human philosophy. Yeah, but not so much as what you can learn from God's revelation. And, and when, you, when you come to the revelation of God, and especially the beauty, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see ourselves. I think C.S. Lewis has a line, uh, and I want to butcher it and you have to look it up. He, he says, um, I trust the Bible because in it I can see all things. And you'll have to look at the, I can interpret all things from the lens of Scripture, from the perspective of God, not from my human, fallible, limited understanding. I don't even know. It, it, it's like, certainly we don't know all the answers to questions. We don't need to even know all the questions to ask about our society, about ourselves, about our relationships, about the real issues we have before God. But God's word teaches us, let's cling to the scriptures, cling to the cross of Christ, the word of the cross, which is both the, the event of the crucifixion, but everything pertaining to it. Why did Jesus have to die? Who is this Jesus anyway? This Messiah idea, where does that come from? And what's this whole thing about Death anyway. Death for what? Death, death for sin? What is sin? Why is it, why is God so worked up about sin after all? Who is, who is this God? Try, try to come to a resolution on that based on human, fallible, limited wisdom. You're not going to get far, far. I mean, you can see some effects of sin. You can see some effects of, of whatever, but to receive the word of God and say, Oh, that's what it's about. God is the one who created all things. God is the one who re restores and redeems. God is the one who provides a sacrifice for sin. Oh, sin is anything that's treacherous to God, rebellious against him. Oh, that's what it means. We don't need, we're not benefited by, it's not powerful, this philosophy, this, this uh, law-keeping, the scribes that raise up so many barriers for people to come before God, you know, all the laws and regulations and so forth, not in the scriptures, they're beyond the scriptures, and they're saying, no, you need this, you need to add this to your practice of religion. And Paul says, no, you don't. No, you don't. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And this, verse 21, is kind of a, it's a complex sentence. In fact, if you were, to, do y'all like to diagram sentences sometimes? Um, where is it? Ah, right here. Here's a diagram. If you want to look at this, a diagram of, of chapter, of verse 21. It's just a, wow. But essentially it comes down to this. 
It is impossible for the worldly wise to know God. Not just a challenge. You know, you got to work really hard to know God. You cannot. What does it say? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Do you remember how Paul said it back in Acts 17? To the unknown God, because certainly of all the different gods we've identified, we have temples and altars and whatever, and and rites and, and sacrifices to these other gods, to the unknown God, because certainly there's someone out there we have, we just don't know. And Paul says, you're right, you don't know, and that's the most important God. You've, you've, you've made up the other ones, and you've neglected the real ones. Real one, excuse me. And he says, you cannot know God through the wisdom of the world. Verse 21, the world through its wisdom can't know God. It's not able to know God. And notice how it says it, in the wisdom of God. Huh, in the wisdom of God. God in his purpose, and by the way, the way that Paul uses wisdom is in those two different categories of human wisdom and God's wisdom. And there's a sharp distinction between them. In fact, this wisdom of the man is just foolishness. It's just embarrassing, really. <laughs> this is what the best you've got over here. Kind of reminds you some of some political races. This is the best you've got to, to be whatever office. Really, you should be embarrassed with that. And Paul says, no, this is the world's, world's wisdom over here. But God's wisdom said, there's a limit. There's a governor on human wisdom. You can't get there from here. It's kind of like living in Kentucky. How do you get from here? Well, you've got to, you can't get there from here. You just can't get there. God's wisdom says, no, man cannot discover me apart from my revelation. Because it says here, the world through come to know God, did not come to appreciate God, to worship him. But God was well pleased. Wait a minute. God was well pleased. God had wisdom. God had a purpose. God has good pleasure in this regard. God is, God is in control. God has this figured out. It's not like he's surprised. It's not like he's, you know, doing the best he can up there. He's got so many things going on and, and not just on earth. He's got all those other alien worlds. No, he's got the world. He got the earth to deal with. And that is sufficient. But God and his wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Because that is really the issue. The salvation of souls. We're talking about all these different issues and life and questions and, and well, what about, you know, who was, who, who was Cain's wife again? Where, where do the dinosaurs fit in the scriptures? Let me tell you, you'll get an answer to that, but your most serious issue right now is salvation because you, you have such uh, uh, adherence or devotion to human wisdom and philosophy. It just cannot prosper. It just cannot be something that advances you've got to have the revelation of God and God through his wisdom through his good pleasure saves those he says i'm going to save you out of that morass this just shifting sands of human philosophy and wisdom i'm going to set you on the rock of my word when that happens oh then everything opens up oh there is god there is his word there is his work in this world there i can see him and i can see all things clearly that's the that's how C.S. Lewis said. I can see all things clearly through the perspective of God's word. And Paul says, yeah, this foolishness that you thought was advancing you, excuse me, the wisdom you thought was advancing you so much, that is, it is destroyed by God. It is set aside by God. And the foolishness, again, this is in quotes, the foolishness, according to the world, of the message preach, God saves people. What is this message? It's the message of the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel. And not even, not so much the action of preaching. That's not what saves people. It is the entrance of God's word. It is the adherence to the word. Whatever the preacher is, it's not so much the process. It's the, it's the message being, being celebrated here. Again, verse 17, the cross of Christ. Verse 18, the word of, cro of the cross. Um, 
through preaching, the message preached, verse 21, is, is uh, spoken here, to save those who, who believe. That is the issue. It's not who's right or who's wrong. It's, it's who's in Christ, who is in, uh, who's been justified, who has this salvation. God is saving those who believe. Again, the contrast is those who are perishing with their unbelievers. They're not, they haven't received this gift of, of faith and repentance. But there are, through God's good pleasure, through God's well uh, pleasingness, he saves those who believe, who do recognize that cross. It's an absurd message. It's Christ died for me. Oh, Christ died for me. That means I should have died. Oh, the wages of sin really is death, and I deserve to die. But Jesus, who is holy and righteous and good, lived a perfect life, always obeying the Father, he offered himself willingly. He died in my place. That makes no sense, but it makes every sense because God is so righteous, God is so merciful, God is so gracious and so humbled himself. Christ the Lord humbled himself to the point of death. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you could read and celebrate. Wow, it doesn't make sense going to the world, but it makes every sense for those who trust God's word, God's provision of life. This knowledge of God is impossible, but it is granted by God's pleasure to those who believe. And that really is the issue. And it's not like, oh, you need to, you need to check your intellect at the door. This is irrational. You know, faith is irrational. You just take a giant leap of faith. It's nothing like that. But it is recognizing that I have a limit in terms of what I can think, what I can evaluate, what I can judge to be right and good and, and proper and true. And there are things I've got to take God at his word. I've got to trust what God says because there are things that I just don't understand. But God's here. And so we recognize that he gives that ability to, to, to believe. And it's not, it is so interesting when you, when you read the scriptures and compare it, if you wanted to, to, uh, for example, the Book of Mormon and some of the other books that the Mormon church has, has uh, constructed or um, well, I think about the Mormons specifically because they have a, a history that they present. They have battles and they have geography. And you try to match that geography from their different books with something on the map. There, there's no place on earth that fits with what they're describing. This, this plain and this mountain and these trees and river. There's no place. And I could belabor that point. But when you look at the scripture and you say, oh, it's talking about when Jesus was going from Galilee to Judea, and he was passing through Samaria, or vice versa. Can you look at a map? Yeah, well, there's Samaria, there's Galilee, there's Judea. And you look at, oh, the Jordan River, or or this place that is right next to it, but it's just a little bit to the left, and you can see in the scriptures, my point is, this Bible is an historical book. It talks about real people, real events. It talks about real, th that can be documented, that have been documented through archaeological research, through, through a written uh, a testament outside the scripture. This is a true book. So it's not like we need to just abandon all rationality and think, well, whatever the Bible says we're going to believe, we have good and justifiable reasons to believe God's word. It's not a fanciful uh, fairy tale. It's not something that is so um, contrary to human experience that we've just got to step out there, close our eyes, close our ears, and, and throw away all of our library books because, you know, God, whatever this book says, we've got to believe it. It sounds kind of weird. No, there's a reasonable, justifiable, rational um now, there are supernatural. You can't appreciate this apart from God's spirit, which we're going to look at in chapter 2 about the limitations of carnal minds or natural mind cannot appreciate. We have the mind of Christ. So there is that going on. We'll get to that in a moment. But the point is here, we don't have to become foolish according to the wisdom of the world 
in a, in a rational sense to say, well, we, we can't engage in the world scene. We can't have a, an intelligible conversation with an unbeliever. No, we can, but there's a limitation, which is why I appreciate so many different evangelistic perspectives where you have all these questions over here and, and Cain's wife and dinosaurs and the age of the earth and, and with this cross and all this. The issue is, what are you going to do with your sin? Because you know you're a sinner, right? Oh, yeah. Well, let me, let me just prick you a little bit. Have you ever lied and, you know, uh, lusted, stolen, took God's name in vain? Yeah. Okay. That's a problem because the wages of sin is death. You're going to die in your sin. Is that you? Does that concern you? Well, a little bit. You're going to die in your sin. You, you have an estimate of when you're going to die. I think I'm only 22 years old, so I'll live another 60 years. Do you know that for certain? You don't, do you have a death certificate already that says that you don't? You better come to grips with your sin right now. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the cross of Christ does. And once that divine transfer happens out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, then our minds are opened up to, this, to the scriptures. It's not that it's not there already. We just don't appreciate it. We don't value it. God's word has to give us this, this wisdom that isn't from the world. It is from God. He goes on, and we'll have to, I think we'll stop here at this point because he, he breaks, he, he uh, shifts his idea and he talks about these Jews that are asking for signs and the Greeks searching for wisdom. And he, he, he shows that this is inadequate. Just can't get you where you need to be. And it, it's, it, it is not powerful because again, look at verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. It's not that God is foolish or God is weak, but even in the apparent foolishness or apparent weakness of a, a suffering Messiah. What is this about again? God's power is made manifest. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God is granting the ability to know him. Isn't that wonderful? The God who doesn't need anything, he's self-sufficient, he, he is eternal in the heavens, and yet he says, I'm going to have a relationship with redeemed humanity. Now, the Unredeemed humanity is going to go away, but the redeemed humanity is going to come. I'm going to bring them right into my into my house, and I'm going to make my my abode with him. And by the way, they come through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and brought near to me, and I have fellowship, a real fellowship. God wants to be known. God wants to be celebrated. God wants to be worshipped and adored. He wants to be feared. It doesn't happen, humanly speaking. Because we, we run away from God, but drawing close to him through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, through a, a suffering, one who has suffered, and it's done, he's not suffering anymore, but one who, Christ, who gave himself willingly on the cross to become sin for us, and now we can become the righteousness of God in him. Tremendous message, but it makes no sense to the world. What's this about? What's this about? We can't convince anybody, in fact, this idea of signs, you know, how many signs are enough? How many, how much evidence is enough to to convince you into the kingdom. You can't. These things are spiritually appraised. You're going to get that in chapter 2. Trust the gospel. Trust the truth of God's word. Receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. And rest on the fact, I don't understand all these things. I, I, I don't get it. Study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly understanding, discerning the word of truth. Don't follow after the world's wisdom. This is what the Lord says. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your truth, the power of the gospel to change our lives, and the fact that we have a, a salvation that, humanly speaking, does not make sense because couldn't we just save ourselves? Aren't we good enough? Isn't there, you know, certainly we can do certain good things and not do bad things, and God will accept us. 
and yet your righteousness is so high, your holiness your, is so high, so perfect, you demand absolute perfection. We could never get there. In all of our wisdom, and all of our strength, and all of our uh, agility, all of our mental gymnastics, we can never get there. But Christ, in his obedience to your eternal purpose, offered himself a perfect sacrifice for sin, for sinners, and that we can have a substitute. We have a substitute, a sacrifice for our sins, and not just one who's, who gets us kind of halfway there, uh, and we've got to do the rest ourselves. No, salvation has been purchased by Christ. It is a done deal. It is accomplished. And so those who are in Christ are justified, are being sanctified, will be glorified. It is a, a divine chain of redemption. We're just so grateful for that. And your wisdom and your plan, your purpose, help us to rest in that. Help us to, to put our own rationality, wisdom, sensibilities, or sensitivities to what the world says is good and right and proper. Help us to put that under the authority of your word. Help us to be so molded to your word, thinking your thoughts after you, so that we would be really standing outside this world system, as we read earlier from First John, that we should not love the world or the things in the world, because that separates us from your love. Again, we pray you'd save and sanctify for your good pleasure. We want to know you better, and we can, because you have put yourself on display in so many different respects, but especially through your Son. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.